Father, you have given us a gift so many are not given. You've given us uh, such a secure, warm place in which we get to meet as the family of faith, as Christ's people here in this place to study your word. We're thankful for every single one who is here, and we're thankful for the rare opportunity we have not only of studying and hearing the word of God, but doing so together. We don't take this lightly. And we pray your blessing upon it, as we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. The John 11 uh, historical narrative concerning the raising of Lazarus from the dead is one of those narratives we cannot read without knowing the ending. So we remember that the people who were living it did not yet know that Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead. We know it. We can't not know it. Once we know it, it's like watching a movie or uh, reading a novel or even following an historical account where we actually do know what's happened. But there was a very recent article that came out uh, actually just in the last week about why the streaming entertainment phenomenon has revealed that People watch the same programs over and over and over again. And I don't just mean the same series. I mean the same program over and over and over again. This has turned out to be the most unexpected commercial aspect of streaming entertainment. Uh, the assumption is that you have to keep producing new things, and of course there are new things coming out all the time. The third uh, season of The Crown was released just this morning. Uh, evidently, the media is a buzz. We also know how that story turned out too, by the way, at least uh, during those seasons. But when you look at reading the Bible, and so many of us have known the Scriptures for so long, and we find something fresh every time we look at them. But the hardest challenge for us is reading it as if we don't know exactly what's going to happen next. Now, we can't suspend what we know, but we can pay attention to the fact that we can't do that, which makes us look more closely at the narrative as it unfolds before the climax in order to understand again the yearning, the surprise, and uh, the, the sheer supernatural nature of what happened. Now, when we were together last, last week, we went through verse 27. And in verse 27, Martha is engaging with Jesus. And you'll remember, as Jesus was coming near to Bethany, Martha went out to him. And so he is not yet where Lazarus is. He's not yet where Martha's sister Mary and the mourners are. But rather, this is, this is some distance away. The key is what took place in chapter 11, verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So there's a, an amazing assumption. One of the things we need to look for in the text is how the presumptions and presuppositions of people who are involved in this narrative are markedly different than they would have been just a couple of chapters earlier. Now, Mary and Martha are followers of Jesus, so we know them well, these two sisters. But the point that Martha wants to make is that if 
Jesus had been there, Lazarus would not have died. Jesus would have prevented him from dying. We are two chapters after Jesus healed the man who was blind from birth, and he himself, that is the man who had been given the gift of sight, said, nothing like this has been heard of since the beginning of the world. Dead people die. Blind people stay blind. But when Jesus demonstrates this ability to give sight to the blind and elsewhere also to the ability to walk to the lame, etc., there's a change that takes place. And, and what we need to see is that amongst the believers, the followers of Jesus, the change that takes place is now the assumption that Jesus, as John told us in his prologue, the one uh, who not only was with God but is God, the one through whom all things were made such that nothing that was made was not made by him, this is beginning to sink in in a deep way amongst his followers so much so that we'll hear the same words from Mary just shortly thereafter. But Martha says two things. First, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But then she says in verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus then says to her, your brother will rise again. Mary says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Okay, so this is one of those conversations in which, first of all, you'll notice that Jesus is having the conversation with a woman. It's one of the remarkable things in the Gospels. We just need to note that Jesus had some of the most important theological conversations he would ever have with women. And uh, when you're looking at Mary and Martha, we're looking at a, a family unit with their brother Lazarus, with whom Jesus evidently had a lot of conversation. And not only that, but in the Gospel of John, it is the women followers of Jesus who often demonstrate the greatest faith, and, and she does when she goes on to say that not only, Lord, had you been here, he would not have died, but even now I know that, uh, that my brother will rise again. Whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Jesus speaks of the fact that he will rise again, and notice in verse 24, what Martha hears is the traditional Jewish belief in resurrection. And this is the resurrection of all the Jews. And so all of God's people will be raised. It is an inchoate hope of resurrection. It's not based upon any particular uh, teaching of a text. It's based upon the prophetic yearning in the Old Testament that requires the continued consciousness and, uh, and, and, and life of those who are God's people, a covenant made forever, not just, not just for this life. But Jesus corrects her. Instead of saying, yes, you're exactly right, Lazarus will be resurrected on the last day, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Another one of the I am statements, and here it comes, and it just blasts onto the page. We, we weren't expecting this. This was not what, if we're reading the text for the first time, we would have expected to see. Jesus says about resurrection, not yes, the resurrection will happen, or yes, you can count on the resurrection to come. Instead, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So in one of the seven disclosive I am statements of the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the I am formula, which was given to Moses in the bush that burned in Exodus. And in this case, it is I am the resurrection and the life. New life is found in Christ. It's Christ who has the ability to say to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so the Christian doctrine, the Christian expectation of resurrection is not inchoate, it's extremely clear. By the time you look at the entire New Testament together, we are told that not only those who are believers in Christ, but all people on the day of of judgment shall be resurrected. And uh, that means embodied. So our embodied existence is not just temporary on this earth. Our eternal existence will be an embodied existence. And on that day, the great judgment of God will come. Those who are in Christ will go into eternal life, and those who are not in Christ will go into everlasting judgment. But the resurrection for Christians, as you understand here, is is the promise of life to come. For those who are in Christ, this is the incredibly explosive promise of the fact that in Christ they will live, and thus he is the resurrection and the life. Jesus continues. He turns to Martha and says, again, you hear John 3.16 in the background, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He asked Martha, do you believe this? It's very interesting. Do you believe this? He, he asked her straightforwardly if she believes this. Now, this is not just a theological discussion. This is a context of mourning. Her brother has just died. She's mourning. The triumvirate of the brother and the two sisters, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they were so close. The world as she knows it has just been redefined in this horrifying and tragic loss of her brother. She desperately did not want him to die. She got word to Jesus so that Jesus would come, believing that if Jesus came, her brother would not die. Her brother did die. And now Jesus comes and says, I'm the resurrection and the life, and turns to Martha and says, Do you believe this? There's a sense in which this should be the way we introduce every text and every sermon. The the preacher, in this sense, should get up and read the text, no matter what the text is, look to the congregation and say, do you believe this? That's one of the ways, for instance, in some communion, such as the Anglican communion, the ending of the public reading of the text of preaching will end with the preacher saying, and this is the word of God, and the congregation saying in unison, thanks be to God for his word. It's a way of the preacher saying, do you believe this? And the congregation responding, yes, we do. But this is Jesus with Martha. And when he asked, do you believe this? She doesn't just say yes. Instead, in verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, what we saw when we ended last week was that this is theologically synthetic. Uh, Gloriously so. She has put together 
what Jesus has not articulated about himself yet. He just said, I'm the resurrection and the life. But you'll recall that in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked the disciples, first, who do they say that I am? And then he asked, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, you understand that Jesus' response immediately was, you didn't come up with this. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Because those two things, Jesus said carefully, those two truths about himself, Jesus had not revealed together about himself. So this is, again, a reminder that the Holy Spirit has revealed this. The same thing happened on the, the Bethlehem hillside. The, the first declaration of, of these two truths came when the angels declared to the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And that was an angelic announcement. Matthew chapter 16, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now you have Martha before any of the male disciples have, have, have had the opportunity to say this. Uh, in John chapter 6, Peter comes close when Jesus says, you also want to go away, and Peter answers on behalf of the disciples and says, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So this is, this is an even more extensive exposition, and it's coming from Martha. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, the story accelerates, beginning in verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher, uh, be very similar to rabbi, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. That's a common, understandable misperception. They thought that she was going to the tomb, so they got up and followed her. Now, Jewish forms of mourning are, uh, are very elaborate, and they do go all the way back to the first century and even before that. Uh, sitting Shiva, many of you have heard, is a, a Jewish responsibility. It's a, it's a formalized period of mourning. The things you do, the things you, you don't do. But the first thing you do is, if you love the family mourning, then you go and you sit with them. And, uh, and you often sit in silence. And this is an act of respect, an act of love. The absence of mourners would mean the absence of friends. And when it says here, the Jews are with her, it just means the people who were a part of their lives, a part of their community. So Martha attempts to tell Mary privately that the teacher is here, implying that she needs to go see him. So Mary does just that, but she doesn't go alone because the mourners are going to follow her, thinking they're acting in respect because she's going to the tomb. In verse 32, we see now, When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So this is the second sister saying exactly the same thing. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. In this turn in the Gospel of John, we're going to see two things. One of them we're going to expect 
and the second we're not going to expect. The first great turn, which we do expect, is that the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, and in this case, most specifically, Mary and Martha, their presuppositions are now so changed by Jesus that they have changed from thinking, what will he do next, to, well, if he'd been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. That's an enormous shift. In other words, they now have such confidence in Jesus being who he is, and they're so confident that God sent him. They're so confident that he can do anything and that in him is the kingdom. They're so confident of this. Then John allows us to see that both of the sisters said exactly the same thing to Jesus first. Lord, if you'd been here, our brother Lazarus would not have died. And we saw how Jesus responded to Martha. Here he's speaking to Mary. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? The first thing we come to understand is that Jesus responds originally like a mourner. And he is one. He mourns Lazarus. He loved Lazarus. Even the the mourners who were there could see Jesus' genuine love for Lazarus. So the first thing Jesus does is is not what we expect him to do. The first thing he does, because we know what he's going to do, so we're a little surprised that he does this, but he actually affirms the fact that Lazarus is really dead. He doesn't say, oh, I'm not going to mourn because I'm going to raise him from the dead. That's not, not what happens. Instead, he enters into the mourning. His heart was greatly moved. He asked where they have lain him. They take him to the tomb. Jesus wept, that shortest verse in the entire Bible, subject and verb in two words. Jesus wept. That raises a massive theological question, doesn't it? Why would Jesus weep? Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows what he's about to do. Why would Jesus weep? It's a very sweet reminder of the fact that in the incarnation, Jesus fully and genuinely entered into our existence. He enters into our grief. This was something that only in the incarnation would Jesus experience in this way the separation of loved ones, one from the other, the overwhelming grief, the unavoidable pain that comes with death. Jesus entered into that for us. It's a part of the suffering that he endured with us. It's a part of what it means that he, in the incarnation, experienced everything that we experienced but sin. He wept. 
But then I said there were two turns. The, the one turn in the presupposition is the fact that the followers of Jesus have now shifted to, I wonder what he'll do in this situation too. If he'd been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. It's the, it's the clear understanding of the supernatural identity of Jesus and his power over blindness and lameness and by extension, even death. But the second comes, and this is more surprising, and it comes from some of the Jewish observers in verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then we read that and we say, it makes perfect, perfect sense that they speculate that way. But no, it doesn't. Just two chapters earlier in John chapter 9, recall the fact that when Jesus gave the blind man his sight, even his friends and neighbors tried to find some way to explain that this wasn't a miracle. Tried to explain it. You remember, they cross-examined the man. Even the Pharisees cross-examined him twice, interrogating him. They even brought his parents in to prove that he actually had been blind from birth and that this was that very man. That's just two chapters ago. Now, two chapters later, the presuppositions of the Jewish crowd have changed so much. Now, they are entering into the same presuppositional assumption. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Well, we can understand Mary saying that. We can understand Martha saying that. But those identified as the Jewish mourners? But that's really the point, isn't it? Because as, as, as we read every one of these texts backwards, we understand, oh, when we get to the end, we understand Jesus' plan and purpose in every word and in every motion. But, but now the, the situation is such that both, both Mary and Martha said, if you'd been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And now you have the speculation from the other mourners, if he can heal the blind, why didn't he come and keep this man from dying? In verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again. It's helpful for us to know Jesus is not a robot. Jesus is not stoic. He feels. That's so important. He, he feels. Even as the book of Hebrews were told, he was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. He, he feels deeply. He came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man. Now, again, notice the specificity of the biblical text. This is a dead man. He died truly. He has been dead now for four days. There's a reason the tomb is sealed. Don't open it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. In verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. 
When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Wow. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? They took that as the response that they should remove the stone, so they took away the stone. But Jesus doesn't first call out, Lazarus, come out. Instead, the first thing he does is to pray to the Father. And he makes very clear this is the Father working through him. It is the Father working through him, demonstrating that the Father has sent him just as was said. I know you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. Isn't that interesting? He's praying to the Father, and he's saying, I'm praying for you to do this through me so that those even who are hearing my voice will know that you are doing this through me, and they may believe that you sent me. But then he did cry out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And then he came out. But who is this man who came out? Verse 44, very, very similar to what you see in verse 39. Verse 39, the dead man. Verse 44, the man who had died came out. And he's wrapped just like a corpse, his hands and his feet Bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And then that very powerful exhortation, command from Jesus, unbind him and let him go. Well, what else would you say to a dead man who's not dead and is bound? Unbind him. Death cannot hold him. Now, Lazarus would die again. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us that he was translated to heaven like the Old Testament prophets, like Elijah. There's, there's, there's nothing similar to that. Instead, he didn't die then. And that was the point. Lazarus, this Lazarus, would die again and would, with all the saints, have to wait for the day of resurrection for which we're still waiting. But he didn't die and stay dead 2,000 years ago. When the disciples and Jesus in John chapter 9 were walking up to the temple and they saw the man blind from birth, you recall the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this man was born blind? Bad question. Conventional theology question. Made sense given the conventional theology of the day. Sin causes all corruption, malformation, bad effects. Someone's individual sin must have caused this. And again, most of the time we're not able to trace any such individual sin to anything like this. And Jesus actually says that's the wrong question to ask. Jesus instead said, this man was born blind in order that in him the glory of God may be revealed. And it was in his healing. And in Lazarus, in him, in his raising from the dead, the glory of God was revealed. And clearly it was. And clearly what Jesus prayed for, asking the Father, remember there were two things. He prayed that, that Lazarus be raised from the dead. He, it, that was implied. He called Lazarus come out. But what he prayed most urgently to the Father was that 
those who were seeing this would understand that it was a sign that the Father had sent him. Unbind him and let him go. That's the climax to the story. That's it. And uh, so Lazarus was unbound and he went. The narrative concerning Lazarus being raised from the dead basically ends there. I find that narratively unsatisfying. Uh, if, we were, if we were honest, I think, we'd have to say we would like to know more of exactly what took place, but we're not given it. What does Lazarus say as an account of what happened to him? What was it like to be dead and now to be resurrected? How exactly do you explain this to people? And what do you do next? You, you, you got to say, in all honesty, the thing they probably did next was lunch. Because that's the way we're made. We experience these massive moments and then we say, I'm hungry. It's just a part of being human. We have highs or we have lows, and then we have lunch. Well, instead, the, the narrative drives on. In verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Okay, there. They had come with Mary. These were the Jews, and the word Jews here is not used in any political sense. It just means, I mean, who else would they be? They're in the Jewish community, they're their Jewish friends, and they had been the mourners who were with them. Many of them believed. So again, we have a pattern that the Gospel of John helps us to see. The signs, the typical Johannine word for miracle, the, the signs were understood. They didn't even have to be explained. Just seeing the signs... Seeing this man raised from the dead was enough that many believed in him. In verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. It's exactly what happened in John chapter 9, two chapters before. They go to the authority. Somebody needs to report this. In verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, that would be the Sanhedrin, and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. There's that Johannine word for miracle again. This man performs many signs. Don't pass over that quickly. Remind ourselves that when John uses the word signs for miracle, it is to underline the fact that they are not to be considered as things in themselves, but rather as events that point to something else. Now, that's true in the other Gospels too. John just makes that clear by using the word sign. They're pointing to something. They're signifying that Jesus is the Christ. What are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. It's an amazing statement. It's political. It's, it's not even theological. Here's a basic principle. We need for people with theological responsibility to show up as theologians. We need people who are supposed to be the stewards of theology to show up with a theological argument. 
the, the, the failure of the projection of a theological argument here points to a vacuum. What are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. Well, you'd hope they would say, I tell you what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to revise our theology. Because our messianic expectation was evidently short of the glorious messianic fulfillment that we we're experiencing. Let's give glory to God and revise our theology accordingly. No, it's, it's, it's not that at all. It's, it's cheap. If we let him go on like this, and by the way, that, that assumes that they have some way of not letting him go on like this. But if, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The signs are so compelling. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What does that mean? What, what does that mean? Well, here is, here is what they're actually saying. And it is stunning. It's explosive. And most Christians read over it and don't understand the explosion that just took place. But, and let's not miss it. They said... If everyone does believe, then the Romans will come. Remember, they're a vassal state under, under the sovereignty of Rome. They will take away our place. But, but not only our place, but our nation. What, what do you think they're saying here? Where's the place? If the Romans are going to come and take away their place, and that's what they fear evidently above all, then what would that place be? That place would be a very small spot of land, comparatively, on which stands a temple. They're saying, if he goes on like this, if he goes on like this, the Romans are going to figure out we can do without that temple. That temple was the central identity in this period we call Second Temple Judaism. This was, the temple was the central identity, not just because it was a constructed building, but because of what took place within the complex of the temple. The most important thing in the temple was the innermost part of the temple in that most holy place we call the Holy of Holies, where on the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice was made as the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies with that animal. That's the core of Israel's theological identity. And Israel's theological identity requires that place. Without that place, then the theological identity of Judaism has to be completely revised. But more than that, they're just understanding their place will be taken away. So the argument to Rome was, the argument to Rome was that the Jewish people and the Jewish nation there in, uh, in Judea in particular, that the Roman respect for that Jewish nation was based upon the fact that it was centered in a cultus that had a physical location in that Holy of Holies in the temple. And it was respect for that that alone explained why Rome didn't simply 
disperse the Jews to the ends of the earth, but rather to keep peace, had allowed them to have their place. But I said it was political and not theological, but actually I was setting us up to recognize it's a lot more theological than it looks. Because why would watching Jesus heal a blind man and why would watching Jesus bring Lazarus back to life make them jump to the conclusion that the Romans are going to say that temple is unnecessary. It's for the same reason that when Jesus is crucified, the veil in the temple is torn all the way from top to bottom because there is no no necessity. There's now no meaning to sacrifice continuing. Actually, those who said this putting words in the mouths of Rome, were absolutely right. If Jesus is who he says he is, then that entire sacrificial system is coming to an end. And the healing of a blind man and the raising of this man from the dead, these are signs that the kingdom is here. It's, it, it's here in Christ. And so it's not just that there would be an annual day of atonement and a sacrifice made inside the Holy of Holies, what need have you of that if this is God in human flesh? This This is meeting God not just once a year in His presence in the Holy of Holies. This is God on two feet They'll take away our place and our nation. They're tied together, the Jewish national identity, entirely tied up with the temple. I don't know how many times I'd read John chapter 11 before it finally dawned on me many years ago what was actually happening in this text. I was first of all surprised by how the presuppositions of those observing had changed from disbelief to believing to the extent that Even they assumed that if Jesus had been there, Lazarus wouldn't have died. But now on the other side of the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, they've come to the conclusion, this means the end and the beginning. But it is political in the sense that they're saying this as the council. If we we let this go on, then the Romans will come and take our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, verse 49... Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, for being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. What, what in the world does that mean? What, what is Caiaphas thinking? We are reminded of the rotation of the high priesthood. It's Caiaphas this year. He says to them, you don't know anything at all. That's a great way to start an argument. You have no idea what you're talking about. You don't understand that it is better for you. He's speaking of the nation because they're talking about the nation. 
if we let this man go on, Rome will take away our, pray, our place and our nation. But Caiaphas says, you don't understand. It is better for you, meaning the nation, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but rather, being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. We didn't know that before. We know it now. We didn't know that. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So what is this strange logic? The strange logic is this. Rome's not going to put up with this. We can't put up with this. And peace will be established for Israel by the death of this one man. And that peace will be such that even the Jews who are scattered abroad will come back. It's, it's a bizarre argument, just absolutely bizarre. It adds some complexity to our understanding of what the Jewish authorities thought they were doing when they sought to bring about the crucifixion of Christ. It was not just that they wanted to be rid of him. It is, as Caiaphas says here, they saw the death of Jesus as a sort of national catharsis. He's so well known now, his death, his crucifixion will be very well known. All kinds of problems are solved for the Jewish authorities if Jesus is put to the death. This national catharsis means that the temple will be secure, probably more secure than ever before, and the cult will be secure, the cultists more than ever before, and the nation will be secure more than perhaps ever before. In the darkest sort of way, Caiaphas seems to be saying, look, we can come out ahead in this. By the death of this one man, we can have a kind of national catharsis. We shouldn't miss the opportunity. So from that moment on, they made plans to put him to death. Very quickly as we conclude this passage, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews. But So this is a major turning point in the Gospel of John. The, the public ministry in that sense is largely over. He no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? He's been staying away because he knows what the Jews have planned, and so he is not presenting himself to them. Then there are those who are asking, does that mean he's not coming for the Passover? And it would be inconceivable in obedience to the Father if Jesus didn't come to the Passover. So this is being set up for the intensity of what's going to follow because we know that Jesus will come for the Passover. In verse 57, now when the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know that they might arrest him. So in one chapter, we've gone from having Jesus away from Jerusalem, hearing the reports of Lazarus, 
to coming to Bethany near Jerusalem, having not only Mary and Martha say, Lord, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died, but the Jews who were with him saying, surely if this man can give sight to the blind, he could have kept this man from dying. And, and, and then you have this incredible disclosure of who Jesus is, but that's immediately followed by the speculation amongst the Jewish authorities that's all about the place and the nation. When we explain, according to the Gospels, why the Jews sought to kill Jesus, we often fail to give account to the argument that they actually made right here in John chapter 11. It will be good for the nation. It will be catharsis for us. It will resolve a lot of problems. And when it comes to Rome, we can even come out ahead in this. So they sought to kill him. And the Passover provides the great opportunity because if he is faithful, he'll come to the Passover. And so Caiaphas and his cronies send out the word. If anyone knows where Jesus is, he should tell us. The stage is set for the quickening of the pace. Everything's now going to be headed for the trial and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. John will be over faster than you expect. The time is becoming conflated. The stage is set. And at least in part, it's set by Caiaphas. But Caiaphas only thinks. He thinks. He thinks he knows what he's doing. There's a bigger plan at work. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for the twists and turns of a narrative familiar to us that discomforts us in the fact that as we read it, it is familiar not as much as we thought. Father, thank you that your word breaks through fresh every time we read it. We pray your blessings upon our reading and study of your word this day. Now we go to worship in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.